Hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, October the 7th, and this is episode number 178 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. So I'm glad that you're able to make it here today. Glad you're watching. Thank you for spending your time with me. You might wonder right now, what's the temperature outside? As always, it's 47 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 8 degrees Celsius, and it's raining. Two prior days... Those were our best days of the whole week. I don't know when the next super warm day is coming up, but now when we do get warm days, that's when everybody's kind of in a fever pitch to make sure and get everything done in their bee yard. Hopefully you guys are all buttoned up. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below and uh, you'll see every topic in order. And today we're focusing a little bit on, of course, winter concerns, preparations. Are you good enough right now? Are your bees set? So we're going to talk about some feeds and configurations, and we're going to also touch on some insulation. So let's jump right into it. If you want to know how to submit your own question, there'll be a link down in the video description, and there'll be some other associated links to the topics today so that you can do more reading or viewing or maybe even some shopping. So let's start right off with Mark Bidwell's question. It says, I heard Hive Alive was back in stock. I like how the B-Smart inner cover fit my knockoff Golden Palace has yet to produce medium supers not compatible with APME. So that's going to stop right there because Hive Alive fondant packs, this is what I'm showing two different things right here. There's the Hive Alive fondant, which is in the plastic, and the Hive Alive pollen patties, which I'm not holding with my fingers because they're super sticky. They have 15% uh, protein, real pollen in them, and so on. But I want to address the claim right here that's back in stock. It isn't. I just checked the website. It's available for pre-order. So what good is that for us here in the United States right now going into winter? Well, if you pre-order now, according to the website, it says that the orders will ship on the 14th of October. So another week, and it should be going out. Just to touch on that a little bit. This is what the Hive Live fondant pack looks like after the bees have been eating it. So I put the label side down, cut a little circle in the middle, and then we look at it from the back and you can see that they chewed that up. And last year I wanted to know, would they clean out that entire thing? So here's another one. My favorite part about this is they didn't chew the plastic at all. I cut the hole and the edges of that hole are the same. And look what the bees did. They cleaned out every little bit of it except for this tiny strip right there. So the next question a lot of people have is when do I put those on? Well, when you're buttoning up for winter time and you're condensing your, your hives down, no problem with doing that right now. You can put them on. Assuming that you have them. If you don't have them, any fondant will work. It's going to help. It's emergency resources. It's not the primary food for your bees. It just happens that Hive Live put a whole bunch of extra stuff in their fondant to help the bees out. And uh, 
but you can put dry sugar or anything else on there. But let's move on to the question here. So wood supers are fine. I wish the shim would go over the reinforcement ribs on the B-Smart inner cover. I've got some bees chewing a new entrance. My poor alignment caught late. Just duct tape for now, and I made two 12-foot stands for next year's uh, hive stands. And 4 by 4 legs are all treated. Should help with windy conditions. And I've uh, been feeding pollen and 2 to 1. So that's what I wanted to talk about to kick it off because it is important. Feeding pollen. How are you feeding the pollen? Because here's some of the options of what you can do. I'm a big fan, by the way, of open feeding in the fall when the bees are looking to rob each other out. So if you can set up a feeding station well away from your apiary, please don't feed on top of your beehives, leaning against the beehives, like when you've recycled frames that you've just extracted. I've seen some people suggest you just take them out, lean them on the beehive, and all the bees will clean it up. But then when it's gone, the hive that it's leaning on becomes the target and they'll start to rob that, or at least try to rob it, and then at the very least, they'll be expending a lot of their energy just defending the hive. So please, if you can, set up a feeding station slant robbing station well away from your hives, and that's where you can put stuff out. You can put up the two-to-one sugar syrup if you want to. You can, I would not put out pollen patties and things like that, but I would put out Ultra B Dry Pollen Substitute. And it's only for a short amount of time. But remember, this is when the environment's going to sleep. The plants are expiring. They're being subjected to frost more frequently. And so the resources that are out there dwindle away. And what do we have? A surplus of foragers that are now, that's why they start to look at things they never looked at before. So anything that's got a sugar content that's out there and available, the bees are going to be on it. They also inspect people if you're nearby. But uh, it will help take the pressure off, and it's an opportunity for late-season resources to be provided. And the reason I mentioned um, Dry Pollen Sub, Ultra B Dry Pollen Sub, which is made by Man Lake, no affiliation with them whatsoever. They're just one of the ones that also demonstrated a benefit to the bees. Now, I'm not a huge fan of building up... Uh, Brood resources for your bees artificially going into fall, but I'm trying to give you options on both sides. If you're a backyard beekeeper and you're just trying to get your bees to survive through winter, then you don't offer a bunch of supplemental feeding because they already have some pollen inside their hive. The cluster and the bee size is normal in response to its environment. So this is one school of thought. Your bees are naturally going to populate or depopulate their hives based on what's naturally available out there. On the flip side of that, by feeding and supplementing and making additional resources available, we end up with populations in hives much larger than the environment otherwise could support or would support. So these are kind of, it's more of a naturalistic approach. And then we've got more of the, I need bees, big, strong colonies ready to go. And that's where all the supplemental feeding really gets focused. So by putting that out, you can put out two to one sugar syrup. And someone made a comment, Fred, you recommended 60 pounds of sugar to a gallon of water. That's just going to be a break. Okay, they misheard what I said. 16 pounds, not 60. So 16 pounds of dry sugar and one gallon of water is two to one by weight. And so a lot of people want to feed that this time of year because it's less water, more sugar, so more benefit for the effort expended to gather that and bring it back. And there's a lot of discussion that 
bees will store um, heavy sugar syrup in their hives. So another thing that actually has about the consistency of honey is ProSweet. It's very expensive, comes from Man Lake. And uh, again, ProSweet is kind of the consistency of honey. It's very dry. It's right around 20% moisture. It has a very long shelf life. And so that's another opportunity. But be warned when you put out these heavy syrups that whatever kind of feeding system you put out there for the bees, if there's any surface area exposed to the bees when they're trying to feed on that, if they flip over from the wind or they get pushed in from each other and they start flipping on their back or their wings get stuck to it, they're going to expire. So on the flip side of that, the thinner syrup, somewhere between one to one and two to one, bees can fall into that and still manage to get themselves out and still fly away. Heavy syrups, bog them down and hold them there. And you'll find with heavy syrup, open feeders, that there's a lot more dead bees laying around in the morning. There's a lot more bees on the grass adjacent to that. And I've done all these observations and studies right here. And we videoed them and everything else. And we showed those comparisons. Um, because on these cooler days, the bees are going to fly to known resources for the nectar, for the syrups and things that you're going to put out. So if you're artificially supplementing their feed this time of year and this is after you've taken all of your honey surplus off so bees will fly out to that bees that got into the heavy syrup when it was colder so i found that they were doing that in the high 40s by the way so even this temperature today would permit the bees to fly to a known source collect the nectar and then of course try to fly back now if the nectar's cold and thick they end up grounded for a really long period of time so on the flip side of that, this is backyard beekeepers. This would be very impractical for commercial beekeeping. Backyard beekeepers can warm the syrup that they're about to put out and don't even put it out. Don't make it available until the temperatures hit 49 or 50 degrees Fahrenheit and up. And we know that they start foraging heavily from 10 or 11 in the morning on until about 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon. So the bees that come to warm syrup and even if it's the same consistency, by the way, but thinner syrups, they gather quicker and move away quicker. So the bees that were flying to the warmer feeders could get the sequence, get the syrup, fly back, and they could do 10 to 1 trips to and from that resource. It was pre-warmed. What temperature would you warm it to? Mid-70s would be great to start them off. And then so they're flying back and forth. Meanwhile, the ones that went to the heavy cold syrup ended up staying there, and it's uh, a tenth of the production otherwise because now they have to warm it up they have to get their thorax warmed back up and then they have to have of course they have to be warmed up before their muscles work sufficiently for them to fly away so that's food for thought also i am a fan of open feeding on these warm days because it does take the pressure off of others and it does supplement your colony also please don't mix everything together so in other words if we know that ultra b dry pollen sub can benefit your bees it's not nutritionally complete the way the asters for example the pollen from the asters would be but uh, it's something when otherwise there's nothing so you weigh the expense and value for yourselves and uh let's see so the two to one is 16 pounds of sugar to one gallon of water and you can go lighter also so that's up to you that's your choice and uh, let's see, low mites, I've yet to vaporize, had a successful combined holding about 10 colonies. Question, when you scrape propolis or burr comb, is it best to keep them separate 
and or when you render it to recoat frames, is it okay to have propolis in your beeswax? Thanks. Okay, so here's the thing. Um, there's a discussion about the composition of beeswax, by the way. When you see, have you noticed, for example, that uh, brand new beeswax is almost white? And uh, so especially if it's made with sugar syrup and things like that. So pollen and everything isn't making its way into it and the bees aren't traipsing all over it. So when you're starting off with a fresh colony, sometimes you'll notice that the beeswax is almost pure white. Even when uh, swarms are gathered in their bivouac location and they're kept in a box for too long. So the swarm traps out there and let's say it didn't have any beeswax coming in at all, you'll notice that it's white. And then you find out that later inside the hive, the older wax gets more dense, gets more reworked, and then gets more aromatic. And this is the part that was kind of interesting to me because it was someone else who said, yeah, regular beeswax doesn't smell like anything. It has no odor. It gets its odor from the propolis that they amend into their beeswax and when they're recycling beeswax inside the hive. And I thought, is that true? And so then I started getting brand new beeswax and sniffing it. And we've got a bunch of it on the shelf and we use it as a, as a training tool. So natural beeswax that's brand new. So the first run, the first time they draw it all out and it's that super light color, I challenge you, go get some of that and sniff it. Tear a piece off and chew it. See how much flavor it has to it. And then you're going to find out, wow, that's, they're onto something. It really was the fact that they're amending propolis, which is highly aromatic. So then we find out that the smell and the flavor and everything else is coming from your beeswax actually is coming largely from the propolis that's also in the hive and that they're amending to it. So that's very interesting too. And if you have a story about that, in fact, I challenge you, go ahead, sniff it. You tell me what you find out. But so a uh, long way around the barn on that. I do not uh, separate it. So when I'm doing scrapings and stuff, I consider all of the scrapings from a hive valuable. So I take with me a stainless steel bucket and everything I scrape off, whether it's burr comb or whether it's propolis to scrape the edges to make sure these boxes fit well, which is very important this time of year, it all goes in the same bucket. And then when you melt it all down and you run it through a filter, which for me is a 100% cotton t-shirt, uh, you run that hot wax through that filter and uh, that yellow, in fact, it's a yellow, almost like this feeder right here. That's what we associate with beeswax, but it gets that color from other material getting into it like propolis. Otherwise, it would just be white. So if you took first run beeswax, virgin beeswax that had never been reworked and it's a brand new colony and things like that, and you turn that into a candle, it would not be very, very aromatic, plus the color of it would be very pale. Interesting stuff. So I'm glad that question was asked because it ties into a lot of other curious things about bees. So um, that's about it for that one. So I'm gonna move on to the next. Question number two comes from Andrew from New Hudson, Michigan. Hi Fred, I just thought I'd follow up on my question from about a month ago that made it on episode number 174 about a colony being on the brink of swarming with three capped queen cells. I just finished configuring my hives for winter yesterday and I can report that my yellow marked queen is still in the colony that almost swarmed. 
Personally, I found it very interesting that the colony would actually decide not to swarm, even after capping three queen cells. In, the, in these past weeks, I've observed a decent amount of pollen coming in, and the smell of honey has been in the air. So I'm leaning toward the consistently colder temperatures as the factor that halted the swarm. But I guess who can really say? Anyway, I just thought you might be interested to know I personally had not heard of a colony halting a swarm after capping queen cells and even digging out and destroying the developing queens. Okay, you know what? That is rare. It's not unheard of, though. I've had a similar experience. The bees do change their mind, and those triggers can come from the environment. So sometimes you'll see, although capped queen cells, that's pretty far along. That's kind of like departure is imminent, you know, but things can change. I've held up swarms by turning on sprinklers and uh, holding them in. Now that just bought me time more often to collect the queen and stop them from swarming, creating a split. And then, of course, they think they have swarmed and then they go ahead and they finish off the development. It just prevented me from losing them. But I've also had hives that I thought were about to swarm and the queen cells were in full production, three quarters of the way done, rare to have them capped. But I've checked up on those a week later, expecting to find them capped and preparing to swarm. And then I, of course, was gonna create a split. And then I realized there was no trace of any of the queen cells. So not only did they chew open the sides and get rid of the developing queens, they completely blended the wax that composed those queen cells into the frames again. So it was very interesting and sometimes they do do that and cold temperatures, shorter days, fewer resources because we know that if the bees can plan it, in other words if it's a natural swarm and it's not because the queen failed or something like that, it's not an emergency situation. They do that when their numbers are up, when the resources coming in are plentiful and the environment looks like it's going to provide a lot and they'll take a bunch of resources from the hive they're in and they'll depart. But if the resources outside and inside become challenged, then they can change their minds. And it's the workers that do that, of course, that change their minds. And they might start feeding their queen again and taking care of her and not treating her like she's preparing for a marathon. And uh, by that, I mean cutting down on her calorie intake and chasing her around and not allowing her to produce eggs, to lay eggs. So they do make that decision on their own from time to time. It is rare, but I've seen it. They do remove queen cells without letting them complete that whole process of emerging from the cell and then uh, creating new replacement queens for that hive while the older queen departs. So it's interesting, and thanks for sharing the update. Question number three comes from Anne Campbell Hall, New York. I'm new to beekeeping in my third year keeping bees in the Hudson Valley. I've been curious about the hive gate and finally yesterday put one on a 10 frame hive box. I don't even have one here. Okay, with steel support and a piece of wood to fill the gap. And my bees are not happy! Exclamation point. They seem to be furiously scratching above the wood piece and I can even see their little feet below the steel cover scratching at the landing board. I anticipate They'll create holes rather than use the blue tunnel. What to do? Is this a temporary reaction while they adjust? Wrong time of year to put it on? Maybe take it off? Thanks again for all you do. Okay, so I can't believe I don't have a hive gate around here to show you. For those of you who don't know, there will be a link down in the video description if you want to see what the hive gates are. I have a page 
dedicated to that at thewaytobe.org. So the hive gate is a long, thin plastic channel that is designed to alter the way the bees ventilate the hive and also provide them better defense if they're attacked by wasps or other bees and things like that. And this isn't just uh, related to the hive gate itself, but this time of year, anytime you alter the entrance, because what are a lot of people doing right now? A lot of people alter their entrances throughout the year. So in other words, during a high flow rate, a high uh, productivity time for your bees when they're just coming and going, it looks like Grand Central Station, they tend to open up the entrance and make it nice and wide so lots of bees can come and go. Now I have, over the past few years, abandoned that practice. I used to do the same thing. Uh, they were in full production, so I would sometimes even remove the entrance reducer entirely, especially on a really strong colony. It just makes sense. They move more air. More bees can come and go, and off, you know, off they go. So uh, whenever even you do that, those of you who have taken these wide open ones or had no entrance reducer and suddenly put an entrance reducer on, one of the problems I have is with, oh man, here's an entrance reducer right here. Very small, by the way. But uh, often there's a, this would be representative of a winter configuration. So if you get these entrance reducer inserts, There'll be a little narrow opening and that's your winter configuration and then you flip it usually 180 degrees 90 degrees and you'll see a wider entrance in that off to the side so when we change it from the wide one off to the side and we flip it over and we have the winter entrance over here even that few inches puzzles the bees and they still go after the spot where the old entrance was Bees are that habit-forming. They're so specific about the entrance they're going to go to. And this is very beneficial, especially the fact when people keep a whole bunch of hives that look alike that are very close to one another. They home in on a very specific location and they try to use that same location. So this time of year when people are packing down, changing things, altering entrances, changing the reduction, you know, the size of the reduction of that entrance, and not just that, but moving it at all to the side thwarts your bees. So it is normal and it is frustrating to see. We've got the biggest brained insects. We spend all this time talking about how smart bees are. And then you change your entrance the slightest bit and they're so frustrated. They act like they just can't figure that out. So yeah, they eventually will use it. I recently reconfigured an entire hive, pulled the whole thing out, pulled all the frames out, put them in a new hive box. That was a video that posted two days ago. And uh, of course, they had an entrance because the boxes didn't come together well on the back of the hive. And the bees, whenever there's an extra entrance somewhere, of course they use it. And off they go, coming and going from that. But I reconfigured the hive, closed it up, tidied everything, got it ready for winter. Now there is a single entrance in the front of the hive. And boy, was that a frustrating thing for the bees. They're still going to the back of the hive. Now, eventually they find their way around. Eventually they smell the pheromones and eventually they get in there. So when we do these configuration changes, yeah, they take some time to figure that out. So hopefully one of the best ways, by the way, to change your entrances on your hives is to do it very early, pre-sunrise the following morning. So... It's better than doing it at night. At night, when we're messing with the hive at the end of a day, because there's a lot of activity still going on in the hive, they're still 
recent traffic on the landing boards. So when you try to reconfigure things at night, they come after you. And if you use a white flashlight, they're coming after whoever holds that white flashlight. So I highly recommend that we give them time. Like right now, when it dropped into the 40s or the high 30s, they cluster up in there. This is our opportunity at sunrise to pull that existing entrance and put a new one in. And that way, those foragers for that day are departing through an entrance that they will be returning through. So it does help them a little bit. But yeah, for several days, they will act confused. And that's with anything, not just the hive gate units. Question number four. I like this YouTube name, by the way. I space D-I-T-A-R-O-D. You know what that means? It's Iditarod. So like the Iditarod, the, the mushers, the huskies that compete. So that was pretty cool. Anyway, Iditarod. <laughs> On this first side, you showed the reboxing that you were that you were going to feed sugar water and dry sugar next spring. Will it be easy for you to tell the real honey? from the sugar honey they make. You don't want to accidentally give your friends or family or customers sugar honey when you harvest the super next year. Do you need a trained eye to tell them apart? That's a really good question and because it is something that people really need to think of and this is why I don't change my configurations. So if it's a brand new colony of bees, they're in a single deep and whether that's a single deep nuke or a single deep 10 frame or a single deep eight frame. That's how they start. And then once they build that out, eight out of the 10 frames, seven out of the eight, four out of the five, whatever it happens to be, that's when it gets supered. Now, those next boxes. So we have the deep, which is the brood box primarily. The next box up is a super, but it's really for them. It's not extra. So when I have a two box configuration out there and that second box is full of honey, I'm not taking that honey off for myself. And this is why uh, I bring this up a lot because I leave that second box. And by the way, it's hard to do. Do you know why? Because when people are looking at packing down for winter, especially when they're on the line to go to that next beekeeper meeting and tell everybody how much honey they pulled off of every hive, how much did you get from your hive? Oh, I got 300 pounds of hive this year. How much did you get off of yours? Oh, I got 80 pounds of hive surplus honey. So, but what you're finding out is this, this is peer pressure among beekeepers in a lot of cases, not everybody is like this, to have bragging rights about your productivity. And so what some people end up doing is keeping that brood box, that single box, taking all the surplus honey off, all of it. And then, because that's 47 pounds, possibly, in that second box on your hive, and they want to harvest it so they can say, I got a bunch of honey. When really, that should be left on for the bees. And that's why when we're talking about the colonies that are getting help, in other words, colonies that are being fed right now. For example, those that are reconfigured recently have lost their queen. So I'm providing them late in the year. This is a, a write-off. Most people that are in commercial or sideliners that have to make every investment provide some return from the bees, they would not do what I do with these hives. Because I figure I have the equipment anyway. It's sitting there. Why not put it on? Oh, they're queenless. Who would requeen a hive this time of year? I would, because I just want to see if they make it. And guess what happens? Often they do. So, 
if I have that small box, now the ones that I put in, they have their own honey on. So the second box, they were pretty loaded in resources. What they were lacking were bee numbers, and that's because I didn't catch it quick enough that they were queenless. So I'm providing a two-pronged approach for them, especially the one that was very tiny. They can't afford to send out a decent group of foragers while they also attend to the brood, while they also defend the hive, and while they also rearrange their stores and resources inside the hive if they're open cells. They rarely, if ever, rearrange capped cells of honey. So what I've put on the smallest and weakest of the two, because I replace it with an apame hive. It has two feeders on top. On one side, I put Hive Alive Pollen Patty. One. And this fit in it, by the way. I just had to curl up the ends a little bit and it fit right in because this provides pollen and it provides carbohydrates all together along with all the other stuff that Hive Alive adds, their seaweed extracts and all the other things that go with that. Now that's one feeder. On the other side, I have sugar syrup. That's right. And the sugar syrup is, so now we have sugar syrup and we have the solids. So we've got the, po the pollen and the proteins that they need to boost brood. Now, everybody says that that boosts brood. And Randy Oliver did studies. If you've never heard of Randy Oliver, I can't believe it because he's like the gold standard for scientific research and beekeeping. And he's got a website called Scientific Beekeeping. And if you go there, they did a lot of late season pollen patty studies. And global patties were clear winners. Global patties are also making the hive alive uh, pollen patties for winter too. I don't usually do it. That's because I don't need to boost the numbers going into fall and winter because I don't need to come out with massive numbers of bees because I don't contract to do pollinator services and things like that. But I have a colony that's well behind. So I'm giving them that Hive Alive pollen patty and sugar syrup between <laughs> one to one and two to one. And they are taking that down. By the way, that's a very good sign. If you put sugar syrup on a hive or any food resource on a hive and they barely touch it, that's a hive that is in profound decline. If you put in sugar syrup and you put in pollen patties and things like that and they're consuming it, that's a very good sign because that means they have enough bees inside to do multi-tasks. So they have all these different jobs going on at once and they're going to use those resources. So now when it gets really cold and it stays that way, the liquid has to come off. That's when we go to, so the side, I'll stop with the pollen patties when it gets really cold and that's going to be end of November. And then that's when the fondant goes on where we otherwise would have had the sugar syrup. And so just as I showed you the empty fondant packs before, I think the Hive Alive fondant packs had a very good impact on my wintering with bees, although I can't single it out because I also made other hive configuration changes last winter by putting on insulated inner covers on my Langstroth hives. And normally, of course, to find out if one works better than the other, we would do half of your hives one way and half of your hives the other way. So I profoundly failed at that because they were doing so well with the insulated inner covers and it made good sense to me. So I went ahead and put them on all the Langstroth hives. So 
the way you tell the difference is you don't in the spring harvest honey from that super so you if you harvest honey it's to feed back to your bees i would think if it's left over in spring um, if you've had feed on that hive now the other thing that we're doing is we're providing potential emergency resources out in the bee yard so if you've got a robbing station you're putting sugar syrup out there there is potential that we always say if it's less than two to one they're not going to store it you don't know what sugar syrup they're going to amend and store in with their regular nectar that they collect from actual flowers so if you want to be certain that what you're drawing off and giving to your friends or as described here selling or giving to customers you have to make sure that that does not come from some supplemental feeding that you're doing so it has to come off of hives that were not supplementally fed this is why your records are so important and for those that were fed it needs to come from the supers above those that were on during the period that you were feeding with supplements it's that easy really you just don't harvest and give that to people now other hives that i have that have never been fed and i have a bunch of them those are the ones in the records that of course will not be feeding from sugar syrup so the risk of having that on that hive is uh, going to be much lower but it would not be zero if you are providing sugar syrup as an open feeding thing or you're putting bucket feeders on and things like that there's a very good chance that it does end up in the honey that's on your hives in winter time so if you want to be 100 percent sure that there is no amended honey in your hives that you're going to take off and use or sell then it has to come from a super that you put on in spring not something left over from winter and uh, assuming then but if you don't feed sugar syrup then you're in the clear i hope that wasn't a very muddy response but uh if you see you know a huge apiary with huge open feeding systems and then people are harvesting honey from their bees early in spring and they're using the winter leftovers from that uh, there's a very good chance that some of that actually includes some sugar syrup contributed nectar so synthetic nectar however you want to call it and other people will argue that well sugar syrup comes from plants too because if it comes from sugar and that's cane and that's a plant and therefore it's nectar from a plant but i'm not even going to get into that way of thinking so if you want pure honey from flowers it cannot be from supers that were on when sugar syrup was made available to your bees question number five comes from ron from tulsa oklahoma this weekend i'm planning on moving my hive treating for mites and i've already started work on hive beetles when it comes to reducing down my ladies have been coming and going through a hole in the medium box and opening up cracks and almost never use the actual entrance watching various youtube friday q a's it sounds like my brood will likely be in the top two medium boxes i'll know better once i completely tear everything apart should i swap the middle medium for a newer box and move my deep to the middle or top position or here in oklahoma it generally doesn't get cold summer for two-thirds of the year the frames are heavily propolized my old bottom board was solid and i switched to ipm version which is integrated pest management so i assume that he's talking about a screened bottom board and that kind of thing also one reason to move 
to have rear access. So also, sounds like I might need to add a slatted rack to help bring the brood even further down. Okay, so this is a problem, by the way, and this is why I'm, I'm trying to explain to people as often as I can, if you have a single entrance on the landing board, single entrance, no upper venting, no upper entrance. There again, this is backyard beekeeping. I don't need huge colonies. I don't need giant production. And I don't want to stack five honey supers on a hive. So when you do that, when you have a single entrance, as described here, it means that their brood is going to be near wherever these ventilation sources are. So that's why you can have, if there's an upper entrance, a no queen excluder, you can have brood up above there. So if you're going to use an upper entrance, and if you're going to have upper venting during the production year, you're probably going to want a queen excluder to keep the brood down below in that brood box. Now, it doesn't sound like that's what was done here. And we're talking about a box that's above the brood box now that had a front entrance in the middle of the box. And so, yeah, there's, there's going to be brood there. Now, the question is, should I take that medium? And it, it wasn't described here, but I'm guessing that the bottom box, the brood box, is a deep. So, me personally, would I take the deep, put the medium down, put the deep on top this time of year? No. That's because we would be providing a whole bunch of potential extra unused space and comb above the brood. This time of year, we don't want that. What we want above the brood this time of year is surplus honey capped and there for them to use going into winter because the cluster is going to rise up through that. So I recommend in this case, and, and people can find their own way to get through these things, but we're going to plug that front entrance for starters and uh, leave the bottom box on and you're going to have plenty of room down there below them it's not so much of an issue because there will be condensation below the cluster of bees and where the brood is because that bottom box unoccupied unused surplus space we're assuming that some resources are probably stored down there and so i would just leave that in place and then uh, have honey above it so you're probably going to go into winter with three boxes and i would close them up make sure they're nice and sealed so they have a good airtight area to deal with their brood they're not going to descend in winter time because they're probably not going to be backfilling the upper areas either so this is just my recommendation that i wouldn't reconfigure it to that extent therefore i also right now this time of year would not drop in a slatted rack above the bottom board because if they're already up in that box and you'll find out more when you take it apart so and give us an update please, on what you find when you pull it apart. If the brood is concentrated in the deep box, then you, your, your problems are kind of much reduced. But now, uh, of course, you can't take off the box that's got brood in it in the second box as well. It could spread through all of that. I've got colonies that spread brood through the bottom two boxes. That's why my standard configuration now, uh, starting in spring, is a deep box and a medium. And that gets them through winter. That gets them going in spring. And I don't have an emergency where I have to get supers on right away because now they're going to backfill as the weather warms up and move back down towards that single entrance, single source of venting. So, but let us know what happens, but I would not pull it. And I definitely wouldn't put a, a box with a bunch of unused space on top of a brood box this time of year. And then honey above that, um, 
you would get them to some degree to migrate up there, but they're not going to abandon their established brood. They're going to stay with that. So now we divided forces with a box in between to go between resources, stored honey, and probably some pollen as well, and empty space, and then the brood area. So that is very impractical for the bees. So I would not change that configuration. Question number six, Ross Millard, Pittman, Pittman New Jersey. Would you talk about your lands and long langs as far as your overwintering plans are concerned? How many frames of honey do you leave and do you pack them down as you spoke about this week? It doesn't matter whether it's a horizontal hive configuration or a vertical hive configuration. Um, we do need to pack down and get rid of extra space. So I pulled a bunch of supers off this past week. And uh, so frames that were capped that were full of honey that were directly above outer frames, especially that were only like half packed or a third of the way packed with capped honey. I pulled those partially capped frames and I replaced them from upper boxes with fully capped frames to give them all the resources that I could going into winter and not having a bunch of extra space. Now we're talking, not talking about the, the hives that I swapped out to new hive configurations. They have extra space. That's a special item. So the horizontal hives, the same thing. I look at where the brood is, and the brood is near, it's in the first 10 frames. That is a huge brood area, but then when you think about it, we look at 10 frames horizontally, we go, well, look at all the brood. But that really is just the equivalent of a single deep 10 frame Langstroth hive. It just happens to be in horizontal configuration. So when packing down, I'm looking for partially filled frames of honey, because sometimes they'll consume the center of a frame, and now you've got capped honey out to the sides. So if I have, for example, if the first, let's say eight frames are nothing but brood, and then the brood kind of trickles out into the ninth and 10th frame, I leave the brood frames alone, but it's the frame immediately past the brood, adjacent to the brood, unless it's a frame full of pollen. If it's just honey, I'm gonna swap out a partially full frame, I'm gonna pull it, and I'm gonna put fully capped full frames of honey right up next to that last frame of brood. And I'm going to do that right through the rest of them. So then when I have eight full frames of honey, fully capped frames of honey, everything beyond that is harvestable. And I wanna get rid of that extra space because I wanna bring up the follower board and create a smaller space for the bees to deal with. So now they have 18 frames, 18 deeps. And so the initial frames, wherever your brood runs out. And then, so the smaller group, like if we only had three or four frames of brood, hope you don't, but if that's all you had, uh, frames that have obviously been used for brood, wall-to-wall -wall bees on those frames. Um, I had one that had 12 frames of brood. So then beyond that, also, by the way, on the lay-ins, because that's the question here, the long laying is being managed by the bees different from the lay-ins. The lay-ins frames, because they're taller, and I thought the bees were gonna stay because they had covered the entire frames of with brood. And I thought, well, where's the honey gonna be that they're gonna rise up into and consume in the winter, Dr. Leo, where is that? Well, wouldn't you know it? Almost like Dr. Leo knows what he's doing. They started a backfill with honey and they shrunk their brood down lower on the frames. So now the stored honey is directly above them. So we have to factor in how much honey is in, if it's a third of the frame, 
that we factor in the weight of that honey because I need roughly, it does not take 100 pounds of honey to get my bees through winter. What I end up with is a surplus of honey then. Last year I had a lot of surplus honey left on the hives. And so now I'm at the 47 to 50 pound resources with surplus for the bees to get through winter. So the same thing, we have to guesstimate that when we're looking at the layens hives. And this year, I'm going to improve their insulation. So do you pack them down as you spoke about? So aside from packing them down, I want to talk about insulation today really quick. So I thought somebody asked about wrapping rounds. It might come up later, but I'm going to talk about it now. But if you had a layens hive like this, this is what a Lane's Hive looks like. They're really tall. They don't hold the uh, standard Langstroth frames. They have Lane's frames. They have three vented entrances on the front. All of my entrances are closed except for the one on the end. That's what I have had my bees use throughout the year, and I'm going to keep them there going through winter. So this side of the hive faces south. This is the eastern side. So now... When the hive top comes, it comes uninsulated, metal-clad, wooden hive, luon, very thin. And then the sidewalls of these, the way they come, if we're talking about horizontalhive.com, uh, these are insulated with sheep's wool, nice and thick. But the top was not insulated, and there's a cavity up here. So I want to talk about how I'm insulating them this year. And one of the things I've done is when we look at the frames on top. Now, the way those, this is 10 frames. This has a capacity for 20 of them. We've got a follower board here. So look what I do to the follower board too, because this space is just as cold as the outside. So look at that. This is double bubble. Some people have reflect text. There's a lot of different names for it, but double bubble is one. And that becomes insulation that prevents this space here from having an impact drawing away the warmth from this space here that's got my brood and the honey and everything else. So then on top of these, I've got uh, nothing but the backs of the frames and the way the layens hive is, all the frames come up against one another and the bees propolize all of these crevices. So now that I've insulated that, we know that these outside walls are insulated and then I take Reflectex or Double Bubble and I lay it down, of course, when it's bigger, like real scale. This is obviously just a model. But I lay a piece over it instead of a blanket. This stuff does not take on moisture. It retains heat, so it reflects the heat back to the bees inside and does not transfer it up here. And then, aside from that one, no supplemental feeding at all on any of the Layens hives. I have two of them right now. Then on the inside of the cover, because remember the sidewalls, they don't need to be insulated because they overlay the sidewalls of the hive itself. But inside there is another single layer of double bubble. So by putting that up in the top, there's an airspace here. And then this goes down. So there's an airspace and there's more double bubble. And then this goes down on the top. So you know what I end up getting? Up to an R13. Double bubble by itself is about a 1.1, but when you partner that with the reflective surface barrier material and then an airspace in between and then another layer of double bubble, you can get up to and oftentimes more than 
R13. So this winter, both of the Layens hives will be going into winter with more insulated covers than they have ever had before. I thought it was odd that such a well-insulated sidewall hive design would have a, a gap up in here where you could put your own insulation, so I did, but it comes without it, and metal clad tops. So now, instead of two inch R10 rigid insulation foam board, I can use two single layers of double bubble and get the same or even better R value. So experiment for this year, can't say how well it worked. I've just been doing, you know, intermediate studies, talking to people that do insulation and everything else. And of course, those people are home insulators, not necessarily beehive insulators. But uh, for myself, this is going on everything I can think of to put it on this year. So that's part of the packing down process. The other thing is, and by the way, those of you who are sitting there with Langstroth hives, going, well, how does it help me with Langstroth hives? Same thing. So you've got a, an insulated, you've got an insulated inner cover or a regular thin Luon inner cover on your hive. So you've got that top box, you've got your inner cover, then you've got an airspace with a, hopefully a feeder shimmer around it so that you can do fondant, dry sugar, and things like that. So on that inner cover, a lot of people are going to put a rapid round, dry sugar in here. So the rapid round is good for liquid or dry resources. When it's for the dry resources, you pull this inner cover out and you put this outer cover on. And now this allows you to pull off the outer cover, the telescoping cover of your hive, which historically has very little to no insulation on it. So much like the Layens hive, the standard telescoping wooden covers are metal clad. They have a thin wooden material and they have a wooden strip around it so that it telescopes over. So here's the sidewall of your hive. It sits on it like that. This is the outside. So that has always needed more insulation. So I did these feeder shims that I made myself, one inch wood. One inch wood is only like a 1.1, an R1.1. Three quarter inch is like a 0.78 R value. So it's very thin. One thin strip of Reflectex is as much as a three quarter inch or better piece of pine. So this is what I'm doing this year on this. So we've got the inner cover. On that inner cover, I'm putting double bubble down. On the interior walls around the feeder shim, I'm putting double bubble on there and I'm stapling it in place. Someone else was using expansion foam, just little strips of it and pressing that up against it, pressing this against expansion foam and it held it really well. I'm stapling, if I ever need to swap it out or change it, I just pull the staples, pull it out again, but you can come up with your own adhesion method. So now the side walls of the feeder shim are also insulated. Then I set this on top of that inner cover and then I put this reflect text, double bubble, whatever you want to call it, around it and then loose leaf a piece of it right on top of that. So then that lays over this and encapsulates it and it's loose and then there's another piece adhered to the interior surface of your telescoping cover. And even when that sets down on your feeder shim, the double bubble edge that goes around becomes that seating surface around the edges too. Remember your bees can't get up in that space at all. So all we're doing is stopping airflow 
and all we're doing is retaining some of the heat in here. So let me tell you something else. I have put Reflectex in my way to be building. I put it in the roof and stuff. It's an unheated building. But then I was looking at that and I thought, hmm, I have these observation hives in there. So there are three of them. So what I did is I created with this really thin double bubble stuff, just for kicks, I created sleeves for all three of the observation hives. So this goes on the outside, it leaves an airspace, they're up against the wall. The wall that my observation hives are mounted to is insulated. So that's taken care of. The only uninsulated part is of course the tube that goes out to the landing boards that allow your bees to go in and out. All those tubes for the landing boards are angled down, so no driving rain or anything like that. And they're in the bottom of the hive, bottom quarter of the hive. Now when I put these Reflectex uh, little pockets, for I call them hot pockets for beehives, we put those around the top of the hive and I put a temperature and humidity sensor, humidity sensor on top of the hives as well underneath the Reflectex. Just went out there this morning. It's 49 degrees Fahrenheit inside that building. No great surprise, it's rainy, it's overcast, unheated building. Guess what? The outside of the observation hives are measuring just because of that one thin wall Reflectex pocket that I made with the aluminized tape that you can buy. And I just cut them, they're really crappy looking and they're just setting over them and they're open bottomed 71 degrees Fahrenheit on the outside of the observation hives under the double bubble. They're retaining heat. That's better than if I made them out of the thick stuff that if three quarter inch wood that we have outside, too bad the stuff's not weatherproof or we actually could have a blanket for your beehives. So it's very interesting and I'm gonna be recording temperature and humidity outside of the observation hives under the Reflectex and if the sun shines at all in that building, because the whole interior surface of the ceiling is done with Reflectex, the slightest sun comes in there, heats up that building. So we had 50 degrees outside on a sunny day, 80 degrees inside the building. What about summertime? What's that going to do to it then? Well, in the summertime, the heat comes from the sun being straight up, straight down on the roof, which is metal, by the way. And that would normally transmit a lot of heat inside the building, making it almost unbearable. But with Reflectex inside there, it will create this heat transfer block that will keep that hot summer heat from radiating into the building. So it retains the heat that comes through south facing windows. In the wintertime, it'll retain that heat. And in the summertime, because now the sun is up, instead of at that low angle, the sun that beats down on top of the roof will help to keep it a little cooler inside that building. Lots to learn. All that from somebody asking about packing down a hive. See how I wove all that great information in there? Question number seven. This comes from Rob Strickland. Seems like your preference over the past year or so has shifted to the ultimate feeder. Initially, not having anything on hand, I started with the inverted ball jar with pinholes. Only to be surprised how fast my bees we're consuming all the two to one sugar solution. Then I realized by the third day of refilling that the solution was just leaking out the bottom of the jar down into my long layens, layens hive, which ironically I sealed so well that it had no way to drain. 
So I donned my bee suit, opened up the hive, only to find flies and thousands of maggots swimming in the sugar solution. I quickly hosed out the right half of the hive using the divider board to keep the bees dry and flushed out all of the mess out of the right side hive entrance. And then used a large towel to sop up all of the remaining water. Man, that's a huge mess. So I've ordered several rapid round feeders since they were appear leak proof. The only downside now is that I found the bees get upset when the, when the sugar solution runs dry and they crawl under the clear cap into the main solution area. So when I took off the lid to refill, one starving disgruntled bee came right at me and stung me on the neck. No more sugar for her, I thought. So I noticed in one of your videos that you mentioned the use is to slide off the entire feeder and quickly cover the hole. That's correct, because I like to clean them too in between. But in the two seconds when I had the hole open, 10 plus bees came at me again as they were waiting in the hole opening to be fed. I've not been feeding my other Langstroth hive and they have been foraging for themselves. The Layens hive I began to feed after I had to requeen. This is the part that amazes me about this letter that was written. My bee inspector squished my queen after I shared with her that this was my original colony from a shed cutout I did earlier this past spring when I first got started. Did you hear that? The bee inspector sees the queen and the guy that owns the hive says, yeah, that queen comes from a cutout that I did back in the spring and then the inspector kills the queen. That, that blows my mind. I found out the hard way that in Florida, bee regulations require all hives to have queens from a known certified queen breeder because of the concern of Africanized bees. I have a concern. <laughs> so. I wasn't going to comment on that, but yeah, I don't know the laws of the state of Florida. But uh, if you're in the state of Florida, is that true? You cannot collect your own bees. You can't collect a swarm. You can't do a cutout. You have to have bees and queens in your hives of known genetic origin. Because here's the part, here's the logic part of this that kind of, Maybe, you know, I just had question marks all around my head. This isn't a brand new queen in the colony. It's not like I just got her this week and don't know what the progeny is going to be like. These bees are known. Their behavior is established. He's working with the hives. He understands their disposition. And the bee inspector says, oh, well, you don't know the origin of that queen. Kills your queen. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so the idea that you have to buy queens from certified sources sounds fishy to me. I don't know. What's your opinion about that? If that was going on, I'm in the state of Pennsylvania. If someone in the state of Pennsylvania suggested we have an encroachment of, you know, Africanized genetics coming into our state. Therefore, you have to get your queen bees exclusively from known certified approved queen breeding operations and you can get them from nowhere else. Is that what I'm reading? Could that be possible? 
because that, I don't want to say what I think about it because it almost sounds like somebody was making sure that beekeepers have to buy queens. And uh, it doesn't pass the test for me because if you get the bees and they're not already hostile when you're collecting them, and once you have them in your apiary and they're not defensive, um, it sounds like you have good bees, but now you have to buy from a government certified queen breeder. Because somebody else said University of Florida, I think, and again, I didn't get this from the horse's mouth. So of course I'm hearing this one uh, from Rob Strickland, but uh, someone else told me that um, Jamie Ellis, University of Florida, was saying that they have to requeen 100% of their hives every year. So queen breeding programs have to be robust and the genetics have to be known. So maybe they know more about it. So I'd be very interested in the viewership here and what you're all thinking about that. But finding out the hard way, I don't know. <laughs> if I was showing my state inspector one of my beehives and we're just shooting the breeze and I say, oh yeah, I got that one out of a tree you know, back in April, look how awesome they are. And he goes, oh yeah, tree, April, takes the queen, pulls the head off. You can't have that queen. I would just, wouldn't even know what to say. I would have to become a, a bee politics activist to try to get, maybe that changed. So, yeah, no drop. But anyway, we're talking about uh, the wrap it around feeders. This is true. Um, but the opening question was, preference has shifted to the ultimate feeder. No, because the ultimate feeder is limited too. So when we're talking about that, this is what the ultimate feeder. Everything from Be Smart Designs is ultimate. So the way it's listed, the ultimate hive cover, the ultimate insulated inner cover, the ultimate botting board, the ultimate beehive stand, the ultimate feeder. So um, this is a one gallon tank. They've been through a lot of iterations and I've owned them all. And early on, the big white tanks that were kind of square shouldered, they mushroomed down on their own and they expressed the sugar syrup out. So through the years, they have come, this one is not like the old ones, not like the others. You can't compress this yourself. So this is a very strong tank. It holds a gallon. And then here's the spud that we're talking about in the middle that sits over the hole on your inner cover. Now, if you also notice, it has ribs on it. So these little ribs keep it up off your bottom board a little bit. They're not open enough that your bees could pass through here, but air can pass through it. So I found silicone canning jar um, gaskets. And I found out that by putting that right over the spud right there, that now this creates an airtight seal on that inner cover. So true, it doesn't sink down and express liquid on its own. But recently uh, in my openings and in a lot of the videos that I do, I talk about the air change, the temperature change. We've had 30 degrees or more difference in temperature from sunrise to mid-afternoon, let's say. So if you had a tank feeder, now in this description here by Rob, we're talking about the glass jars with the holes in it, the ball jars, which is like one of the oldest methods, poking holes in the little tin canning lids and putting your jars upside down. And 
when the, the changes in temperature occur, if that jar is full, it's not that big of a difference. But if we were at, if it was half full, let's say, and we started the day at 29 or 30 degrees Fahrenheit, and by noon it was in the 60s, the air in that jar would expand and push the liquid down through those openings. That would also occur in one of these. The only way to know for sure would be to fill one of these up and then have it, you know, two-thirds full or something like that. Keep it in your refrigerator upside down so, of course, nothing drips out. And then you would take this out and put it on a measuring cup and then set it out in the warm air. And then you see how much of that comes out. Now, the designer of this, uh, the owner of the company, says that that's one of the reasons why they have these small holes and a small spud area. In other words, as that temperature rises and as it expresses some of the liquid out, uh, the bees would be able to keep up with it as they went. So I haven't proven that yet myself. But uh, I know that some of the jar lids, people get carried away with a bunch of holes. So maybe another solution for your jar would be to have fewer holes or smaller holes. I don't know. But I would also, before I put any kind of inverted feeder, whether it's, you know, a bucket feeder or if it's a glass jar or if it's one of these styles of feeders, they have the potential to leak. So I would always first put them on some other kind of container and see how much liquid uh, seeps out of that and also run it through those thermal changes that I just described. Do this at home. You know, you can test it. Why not test it before putting it on your hive and risking what was described here by Rob? The other thing is, on the, ins on the insulated inner cover, we don't get a choice on where the hole's going to be. It's dead center. So if I were designing an inner cover to feed my bees, I would not have that feeding hole dead center. It's also on your, on your inner covers on a standard Langstrothehyde. The feeder hole is in the middle. I would like to see that move to the back third or off to the side a little bit. Of course, you still have to have room for a tank or something like this. But if I were putting jars on, I would make sure that they're not going to be directly over my brood, which of course is counterintuitive uh, based on the white paper that was published by the owner of Be Smart Designs. Because the point is that you could feed liquid in wintertime. Now, if I were doing that, it would have to be something really heavy like ProSuite or it would have to be actual honey, which a lot of people don't want to feed back honey. But uh, it would have to be really thick so that they're not dealing with a lot of extra moisture. But the thinking is this will be in the center on top of that inner cover. And then the cluster of the bees comes up here and they warm that surface right there and they can get the syrup from it as it warms in contact with the bees. Of course, the rest of the tank is going to be whatever the outside temperature probably is. So insulated covers also slows down that transition. It's kind of like when it uh, is a really cold morning, you go out in your garage, it's cold inside the garage, but then it gets up to 50 or 60 outside and you go back in the garage, the garage is still super cold and but you go outside and it's nice and warm so it takes a long time for that to catch up inside to outside so a feeder shim can slow that temperature change that this tank would be sitting in and if you had like double bubble insulation wrap by the way i have no connection to those people at all zero but if you had insulation in the space 
then it would also slow down this space's impact from outside sun and warming through the day. So it would slowly rise and then maybe, in fact, your bees could keep up with it. So I've not, they're for different purposes. So that's only for liquid. So then when it comes to the rapid rounds, you have advantages on both sides. We can do the liquid. So what we're talking about here is this clear cup that goes on them. And you pour the syrup in here and the bees come up inside here. And then of course they get the syrup. And when the syrup runs down, this particular one, the cup goes all the way to the bottom. So even when it's empty, bees cannot come out down here. Some of the other designs, it's slightly raised. And then the bees actually push this up and go out and can actually get caught in the syrup and stuff like that. But this provides sugar syrup. Uh, it does not leak out no matter what the exterior temperatures are doing. It never expresses liquid down into the hive. So it's totally safe from drippings like that. The other thing is when you take that center cone out, this is now a dry feeder. So you could put pieces of fondant in here if you wanted to. You could put pollen packs, although those are designed, they're supposed to be directly on the brood frames themselves, but I don't even put them there because I know, I know myself in the middle of winter, I'm not gonna pull an inner cover off and expose the brood frames in order to see if I still have a pollen pack or fondant still. So I put those resources on top of my insulated inner covers. Same thing with these, they go on top of the insulated inner covers and it proved out through last winter that the bees still come up through these centers. They still go out in here and they still get the sugar. And by the way, the condensation that forms on this lid drips down onto the sugar and helps solidify the sugar. And then you'll see the little patches that the bees are working on. So when you pull your outer cover, and in this case, so this year for the first time, I'll be pulling the outer cover and then I'll be pulling a layer of Reflectex off the top of it. And then of course there'll be this around it and I'll be able to see if the bees are working in there. So if you have Reflectex, Double Bubble, whatever trade name it goes by, around your feeder, if it's a rapid round like this, and you have a couple of layers of it right over the top of the feeder, you actually create a potentially another hot pocket. Keep in mind what I just said about the observation hives out there they were 20 degrees warmer just because of this material being around the hive. So if this is here and then we have another insulated outer cover up above it, the bees have an opportunity to have a slightly warmer space in here than they otherwise would if this were just open to a normal uninsulated feeder shim. Food for thought, and we're gonna be finding out a lot more about that this winter because that's my configuration. I've not done it before, so I have to say that. It just makes sense to me, so that's what I'm gonna try this year. And no drowned bees ever with these, by the way. So you wanna keep whatever you're putting feed on, if it's in a liquid form, you wanna make sure that it's not going to express a bunch of liquid down into your hive and kill all your bees. Thank goodness, hopefully that happened on a warm day, but what a mess to clean up. So here's question number eight, and this is more a comment though. This is from Suzanne, and I'm gonna mess up the last name, Guio. Okay, Suzanne Guio. Anyway, Mr. Dunn, have you seen this horizontal flow hive? And then she linked uh, a YouTube channel. So I thought, 
Uh, I had to go look at another flow hive horizontal. But uh, anyway, I was impressed with her husband's carpentry abilities. I wish I had a husband that had that talent. Impressive. I would, however, out of curiosity, be interested in your impression of this design. So here's the thing. Um, I looked it up, and this is somebody that I've recommended in the past. Australian family, by the way. The channel is called Cat Andrews. K-A-T. A-N-D-R-E-W-S. So that's my shout out for today is to Cat Andrews. This, um, I think it's a, it's a lay-in style. No, they're using long Langstroth. Sorry, they're using standard Langstroth frames, but they're putting Flow Super frames in it. So I'm going to link that video down in the video description so you can go check it out. I don't think Cat's channel gets uh, enough exposure really because what they did, they go through the whole process rather than explain it all to you. There are a number of people making horizontal hive configurations that are trying to accommodate that added convenience of flow super style frames. And my question to them is always, well, how are you tipping your hive to drain the frames? So others say, well, they'll put the legs up on blocks and they'll tip the whole hive that way. I say, oh, God, that kind of works. And so I did watch Cat Andrew's video this morning, and I just found out about it, of course, thanks to Suzanne. And uh, man, they put a lot, of, a lot of work into that. Removable trays on the bottom, everything else. So please go, follow the link, go to go to Cat's channel, and uh, tell them hello from me, and uh, let us know what you think about that yourselves. Um, I was very impressed with all the work that they did. It was very interesting too. Because um, Waz and Mandy are friends of mine also who comment a lot and they watch my channel. And they were there as her mentor helping her put things together, Small World. So that was cool too. So please go and check out that video for today's shout out. Now we have the fluff. Just a bunch of regular nonsense for me to talk about. Now I don't know if you guys are movie buffs at all. But I like scary movies, and this is October, and here in the United States, we have something called Halloween, and some people have Halloween parties, and I have grandkids and people that I like to see get scared. But uh, this, is, this is kind of a corny movie, but it's called <clears throat> Terror Out of the Sky, and it's about honeybees. And the cool part, though, about this movie is... Uh, they used real bees in everything. Now, this film is from the 70s, 1978. So I was actually in high school when this film was being made. But what's really funny to me was, and I bought this from Amazon, Blu-ray discs, by the way, movies are so inexpensive right now. Um, but the guy that uh, played Grizzly Adams stars in this. And uh, the little kid that was in The Rifleman, he was a rifleman's son. So there's a bunch of actors in this that if you're from the United States, you watch these shows during the 70s and maybe they're still on repeats now and everything. These actors are in here, which surprised me. But anyway, I don't want to blow it for you if you get this film. But this is my recommendation. I have a, a whole collection of any movie that's about bees or hornets or wasps or, you know, um, when ants attack and stuff like that. I like having these goofy films. And so that's my recommendation for this Halloween. If you want to see a movie that's related to bees and they're kind of sophisticated, there's some bee science in here that's pretty good. And they talk about bee pheromones and stuff like that too. So that's a recommendation for a 
not a very serious, scary movie. So if you like to, if you like kind of goofy, you know, low budget movies, that would be a fun one. So the other thing is winter nutrition. So I just want to talk quickly about what I'm doing for winter nutrition for my bees. Number one, leave enough honey on the hives for your bees to make it through winter. Number two, emergency resources for the bees if in the event that they do somehow magically consume all of their resources then we put on uh, this year all of them will have the hive alive fondant packs here for me so if you have another fondant recipe or you're clever in the kitchen and you can make your own stuff or you've got your own recipe those uh, are really great the bees use them and uh, my bees did extremely well coming through winter so you can also put dry sugar if you just want to do that in a wrap it around, for example. Now, when I'm just using the fondant pack, I cut the hole, as I showed you before, where they will clean out 100% of this. But this year, what am I going to lay over the top of my fondant pack? Double bubble right on top. Maybe that will allow them to access that more frequently than they otherwise would have in the winter. I live in the snow belt. Uh, make sure that your beehives, this is the time of year to check it, that when they sit on top of each other, you get down there and look and make sure that there's no gaps and stuff that your bees are trying to fill. So it's also when I'm packing down and doing that end of the year inspection, scrape the tops of every single frame and uh, make sure that the edges where the wood marries together is also scraped nice and clean. They're nice and flush and they're going to come together because they're running out of days when it's going to be warm enough for them to seal things up. So this is kind of your final call to get your hives and line them up, by the way. Uh, this also happens sometimes. People get a bunch of, you know, their, their hive boxes are all put together. They're all done. The work's all finished. And they realize those bottom boxes are their bottom box and their landing board are slightly skewed. So one is a little offset from the other. So what I do is I use bar clamps. And the bar clamps with the little threaded screw ends and all I do is like if the box has shifted a little bit, I line up the bar clamp and then I screw it and use the bar clamp to pull them back into alignment. And you can do that with a full hive full of honey and everything else. Bar clamps will do it. So just line them up and use those to draw them into. You don't have to take everything apart and then push everything back in. Please don't come in and whack them with a mallet. Your bees don't care if it's gradually being moved, but you start pounding on it. You're going to get them all excited for no reason. So line up the boxes, clean the edges, make sure everything is seated really well. Um, also, for those of you who are planning to get Hive Alive Fondant, pre-order it. I don't know how much they're even going to have available. They didn't estimate the demand for their product very well, so they ran out. So that comes available, as I said, on the first one. People keep asking. Uh, 14th of October. So they're accepting pre-orders for that. That's what I'm using. And uh, 3 8 inch openings or mouse guards. So for your entrance reducers. If you guys have Flow Hive 2s and things like that, those entrances with the aluminum bottom on it, those are automatically mouse guards. They, nothing gets in there. I've got a video that I have not yet posted, by the way, that shows mice trying to get in, one mouse in particular, trying to get into one of the hives, and he could not get through that 3 8 inch opening. So that's testing because I make that recommendation so often. I don't want somebody to follow my recommendation and then find out, yep, 
Mouse got in, ate a bunch of bees, defecated everywhere, and they propolized it, turned it into a mouse mummy. So I have the advantage where I put several cameras out in my bee yards at night, and they are sensitive enough to pick up on mouse movement, and here we have the deer mice. I did find the tiniest shrew I've ever seen, which is a pygmy shrew, and uh, like that big. A tiny pygmy shrew, if it could get up on your landing board, could make entry into a beehive, I would think, but I've never seen one get up. I've never had one in a hive. I've never had damage from a pygmy shrew, but some people in Massachusetts, I believe, have said that a pygmy shrew can get in there and be a problem. But for mice, the 3 8 inch high opening has been enough to prevent them from getting in. So then you don't need a mouse guard. Now, if you've got an opening that's higher than that, then you're going to need to put a mouse guard on and you can use hardware cloth or whatever it is you've decided to go with. The reason I don't like mouse guards is because I want to go out there in the wintertime and I want to scoop out dead bees as often as I can. It gives me something to do. I listen to the hives. I can stare at the hives. I can do thermals. And while I'm out there, I like to scrape everything out. I know if I have mouse guards on that require a screwdriver or something to get them off, probably going to be lazy and not to do that as often as I should. So with a 3 8 inch opening, I consider that to be a mouse guard in itself. And I just, I keep track of that every single year and it has always worked. And I uh, have a clean out tool, I just showed that, and that's it. And I told you about the Halloween movie and I wanna thank you for being with me today. I hope that your, your hives are going into winter well. It is too late to talk about mites if you haven't already done treatments. Your last treatment cycle for mites, if you're using oxalic acid vaporization, for me in this neck of the woods is going to be the end of November, the first week of December. That's when historically we have the lowest temperatures in the hives, the smallest brood area, and it's a prime opportunity to get the last punch in on those phoretic mites, mites that are exposed and obviously not underneath uh, pupating caps. So. That's it. Thanks for watching. Have a fantastic weekend.